Hello, I'm RP. I'm a sustainability professional involved in impact investing in social enterprises. And I'm Sam, an advocate on the role of technology in the pursuit of social innovation, nation building, and sustainable development. We're both from the IGP's MSC Prosperity Innovation and Entrepreneurship Program. And welcome to, to Prosperity, Prosperity and Beyond. And we are back. It's been a minute since our last episode, and as usual, we have another amazing guest with us. That's right, Sam. I'm absolutely excited to introduce the next guest. Suffice to say that our guest today has a stellar career in social entrepreneurship. With over 10 years of experience in dealing with social enterprises globally, he has made a name of himself. Currently, he's the founder and CEO of Cambio Consultancy, working on change management with a range of clients across public and private sectors. So some of the organizations he has worked with include Unlimited, which is the UK Foundation for Social Entrepreneurs, where he helped secure an investment of over £10 million for universities across England, and the Global Social Entrepreneurship Network, where he led 60 members in over 70 countries to better support social entrepreneurs across the world. And without further ado, let's all welcome Peter, Peter Patasho. I think Sam and I was throwing back and forth this question. Mm. The example we thought of is like Robin Hood. Like, yes, the tagline, stealing from the rich, giving to the poor, might be simplistic. But Robin Hood did have his merry men. He clearly had this like idea of bringing in more people as, like, as the maneuver for social change. And what might have been illegal then... <laughs> might just be creative innovation now. Yeah, just a disclaimer, this idea is entirely RP's. And he's just that creative. So he therefore came up with this icebreaker, which I think is perfect for this episode. Absolutely. Well, look, first of all, thank you so much for having me on your fantastic podcast. It's a privilege to be here and to speak to your listeners. So, uh, I think it's a great icebreaker. It's a particularly good icebreaker because Robin Hood is actually... Um, uh, a myth and legend, I guess, from my hometown of Nottingham. So I grew up mm. in Nottingham and spent mm. 20 years there. So very relevant. Yeah, um, quite fitting. <laughs> it is quite fitting, I think. I'm going to pick a different example. So myself and my partner are watching a film a couple of weeks ago called The Lost King. I've been meaning to watch it for some time. And it's about Richard III. Um, so a long forgotten 15th century king who has a bit mm. of a bad reputation, mm. um, mostly for losing a big battle. Um, and having half his head chopped off, which tends oh. to give you a bit of a bad reputation. Yeah, that's not good. No, it's not a great <laughs> ending. Um, but actually, he um, is undergoing a bit of rehabilitation as a social innovator because he established the modern legal system in the 15th century. So this idea of being able to get legal representation in the courts, whoever you are, and certainly if you're not simply part of the rich and powerful ruling class, actually, that was a big change. Um, he also provided a lot of support to the north of England, which is where I'm from. So... Um, I think a good example of a social innovator from a long time ago. Mm. Wow, that's a very, that's a very it's good It's a historical example. example. <laughs> like, I mean, setting up the legal system would literally half the head. 
Uh, well, that happened first. Thanks. The capabilities of this person. This is amazing. I, did, I didn't realize this was going to be comedy as well as social enterprise, but I'm loving it so much. I guess now that we have that out of the way, um, let's start with your personal background. So you completed your bachelor's degree in politics and you have a master's in globalization. Correct. Where you pursued modules on Western and East Asian politics, mm. as well as gender development. Correct. Yeah. So having said all of that, how did these things influence you and in your approach to change management? I think the key word there is global because I took both a UK um, uh, centered approach, but then also looked to good practice in other places. I've always been interested in, in what works in other countries. I'm, um, as you can perhaps tell from the name, I'm part Ukrainian, so um, my family is yeah, from a, a strong refugee background in Eastern Europe. And when I started at Warwick, we started with a very international community, and certainly my master's degree, I think I was one of only two people from the UK out of a class of about 40 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so the international perspective was really key. So I, I was looking from a very early point for lessons of what works in other places um, and how you build communities. So interested in topics uh, within my degree and inside the curriculum from around the world, but actually what are those practical, tangible examples of how we can make a difference? I, I always drew a, a line between theory and practice, even mm-hmm. when I was studying, because it was clear to me that knowing all the answers is one thing, if you did, but actually applying them in the real world was a whole other challenge. Right, right, yeah. And unfortunately, not a lot of people have a clear understanding. No, but then some people actually are built to learn more in re- with real life examples than it than with this with academia. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think this channel um, uh, moves into the next question. I I feel uh, you mentioned in another podcast that having self awareness mm. is quite difficult to do, and you also said that you begin any consultancy job with a focus on the person slash yourself. As someone who is partnered, father to two cats, and the CEO of your own consultancy firm, how have these roles been sort of incorporated to your sense of self? More importantly, how do you make use of the the sense of self to influence innovation across the world? Yeah, for me, person-centered approaches are really key. When I started out in the social enterprise sector, I was very focused on the individual entrepreneurs and Mm. the role they played. There was a lot of support I felt out there for technical solutions to social problems, um, lots of great business coaches, lots of very talented, high-potential social ventures, but actually there was a lot less support for um, the majority of people out there that were sort of interested in the topic or just trying to get started or something off the ground. And I felt really strongly that what was missing was that focus on the self, on the individual um, entrepreneur, and their unleashing their abilities and talents to create social change, whether that be through starting and scaling a social venture now, or whether that be through taking those skills and experiences back into their existing business um, as an intrapreneur, potentially. I was more concerned about developing the individual than I was about building the most fantastic unicorn or, or venture as, as the, the practical next step for them. I've applied that into my own personal life. You know, I have a, I'm lucky to have a great family, a um, couple of, of cats as well as a, a mm. husband. It's like having three cats. <laughs> You'll never listen to this, so it's fine, I can say that. Um, you know, and it is about placing the focus on individuals that can make change and giving them the full potential to do that. I think that applies in your professional life, uh, certainly in my work, but also in your personal life investing in people, but especially people who have that potential. Um, and, and the last thing I would say, there's a great sporting analogy here. I'm a big fan of sports um, 
partly because of the meritocracy, the harder you work, linked to skill, the, the, the better you tend to do. But for me, the point here is, um, in order to have some fantastic social enterprises, you need to have lots of people involved in entrepreneurship. The same as if you want to have the number one tennis player in the world, and Spain often have the number one tennis player in the world, mm. they have a lot of people playing tennis. Mm. Um, you know, that's a baseline, or we look at the Lioness's success in the Women's World Cup, it's because there are a lot of women now and girls playing football. So to achieve those heights, you've got to have a lot of people involved, and that means you need a person-centered approach. Right, yeah. I was, I just wanted to sort of forward this thought then, not necessarily like as a challenge, but rather, what do you say of the people who feel that they can separate their professional and personal life? Mm-hmm. That like the self-centered approach does not matter to them because like if they can coordinate themselves in a professional way, mm-hmm. then the personal doesn't have to bother. I think they might be kidding themselves. I don't think it's easy to, to draw a firm line between So they're being delusional. Things. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call them. In the Gen Z speak. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't want to upset your listeners because some people might see this as a challenge they want to take me up on. But no, I, look, I, I think in seriousness, certainly taking my field and my own lived experience, running a business or helping other people to do that, you know, you have to draw your own lines uh, in the sand in terms of where your, your work life and your personal life end and begin think about the pandemic and we were all having you know 30 second commutes from our bedroom office to our living room quite often if you were lucky enough to have that sort of setup so it's very hard to draw those lines become easily blurred um it doesn't mean to think to say i don't think it's important to do that but it's hard to do um and really if you are sufficiently conscious of yourself and what your strengths and weaknesses are what gives you motivation and what your passions are it's easy to start making those decisions but I would never say it's inherently simple. Right. Um, Anyone that says that it is, I think probably needs to look at themselves and reflect a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's tough. There's no easy answers there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, beautifully put. And having said that, perhaps we can transition to more conversations centered mm. around innovation. Of course. So as we all know, it has been the buzzword for the past quarter century. Yes. And specifically in our program, which is Prosperity, Innovation and Entrepreneurship, yeah. we're taught about the different approaches to innovation, that it can be a process, it can be a product, and also a mindset. And in your work and consultancy, or mm. wherever you approach a client, yeah that comes to Cambio Consultancy, which literally translates to change consultancy. Mm-hmm. What is your definition of innovation? And how can we create more innovations or social innovators in the world today? Yes, it's a really good question. It's the question that I answer or, or try to answer every day in a slightly different way with the clients that I work with. And first of all, I say I'm very lucky to work with UCL and, and both teach and supervise on this particular program. Uh, and with many other universities, I'm a big believer that universities are a bit of a crucible for social innovation, for change, for lots of reasons, not least the expertise and the academic excellence that takes place, but also, frankly, the degree of entrepreneurs and innovators within that space, staff, students, alumni, and uh, etc. Um, in terms of how I define or work with social innovation, and my interest really is in social innovation, innovation without um, a kind of clear purpose that has a social uh, attachment is not really my bag. Um, but I think social change has never been more needed than it is today. If you look at the scale of the social challenges and problems that we have that faces, you know, I was actually meeting with a, a university um, today and we were talking about what are those key trends uh, emerging and they're not, it's not difficult to find them. You know, we talk about climate change, we talk about diminishing resource, we talk about um, generative AI, 
Um, we talk about the role of the private sector and, and public-private partnerships. You know, there are threats in the world today, but there are also real opportunities. I think the key, yeah. if we talk about entrepreneurial mindsets and innovative mindsets, is to see the potential and opportunity in some of the most challenging environments, um, because that's really the only way we're going to solve some of these major problems. For me, it's it's loving the problem, but not being too attached to a particular solution. Mm-hmm. The more you have proximity and, and ideally some lived experience of that particular social problem, the more you're able to tangibly work up solutions, but it's quite often not the first solution that you arrive at right. in the world of enterprise, let's say, that is the one. Yeah. Um, but if you fall in love with the problem, you're likely to get there in the end. So for me, innovation is often about falling in love with the problem, but being quite agile with the solution. Mm-hmm. So it's like this formatting of like an agile solution. Mm-hmm. Definition. Um, yeah. And sort of the transition that from that is like innovation then generally is concerned with improving an understanding of the status quo. Mm-hmm. Um, that assumes that something is lacking with the status quo yeah. and that needs to be changed to improve for quote unquote the better. So in trying to innovate for prosperity or social change, are we in danger of changing something for the worse? And how do we avoid that? I think um, a relevant and current example, mm. and then spoilers, not spoilers, because like it's a- uh, It's, it's been a out for a while. It's a biopic, <laughs> it's a biopic so people should know. Yeah. Um, like the innovation on the Manhattan Project, or yes. the life of Oppenheimer, yeah. where he, the, well, in the movie, he made such a point where the, the point was the chase mm. of finding out if it's possible. And then you chase it and you chase it when you suddenly figure out that the innovation is no longer yours. Mm. And then all of a sudden, we've changed how we do warfare. And now everything mm. in the world is now on a dead clock to, for, to the first country to launch the first nuclear weapon yeah. after the world war like how do we avoid that mm. yeah there's a really really good question there's a few questions in there i think i mean first of all allow me to digress slightly but i live in in north london camden and we live on a victorian road so that the property we live in is a victorian flat conversion and um it was built in uh, 1884 and I'm often asked the question especially by taxi drivers um, why is it so narrow on your road why, why is it hard to drive down because we have cars parked on both sides and just room for one car to go in the middle so quite often we're in a situation where you have to wait a while for the car or the, or the shopping or whatever to arrive and, and you know it's tricky and I say well that's because the road was built before cars existed mm. and it's built so that you have enough room to get a uh, horse and carts going up and a horse and carts coming down I've got photographs in my apartment from around 1903 well, you can see a horse and cart going up the road, people walking along the side. It was a much calmer neighbourhood um, in those days. So, And the point I'm trying to make here is that um, we have to do a little bit of digging sometimes to work out the way things are, the way things were made. And if I take the example of the horse, well, back 100 years ago, you'd think, to, well, to travel faster, we just need a faster horse. We need to train and come up with a breeding programme. And then, of course, Henry Ford came along and we had the automobile. That's a, sh- a major shift, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, that's an innovation outside the box. Um, so innovations can come in really small tweaks. I mean, Uber is a good example if we take the theme of transport. Yeah, it's a, it's a platform, it's a marketplace. They haven't invented a, a taxi. They've just brought people that need transport together with forms of transport and drivers. That's, that's a, a fairly small tweak, but it has been market-changing and market-leading in the way it's, it's driven innovation in that space. But equally, there are some major innovations like, of course, the car 
in the first place that has fundamentally changed the way in which we live our lives. So these are all major changes. If I come to the Oppenheimer film example you've used, why I went to the cinema again actually over the weekend to watch that for the second time. Um, <laughs> it is a good film. It's a great film. I think it, uh, sort of maybe this is a spoiler alert, but I, yeah. I think it's um, uh, absolutely the favourite for the Oscars in February. Um, but one of the key takeaways in the end of the film is where um, Cillian Murphy is talking to um, the character that, uh, or the actor that plays uh, Einstein, and he talks about have we created this chain reaction? I think you're referring yes. to. Um, have, have I inadvertently, back in the 1940s, started the ultimate chain reaction that will destroy the world by placing the power of the atomic bomb in the hands of um, the American government and ultimately the world? Um, it's interesting. We can't always predict what our actions today will, will create tomorrow. The Manhattan Project is a great example of that, where it started out as an arms race with Nazi Germany and became an arms race that we're in still today. Mm. You look at the conflict in Ukraine, which matters to me personally, of course, because of my background. Uh, think about what... That, that delicate balance we have, has it ended all war or will it ultimately create the war that will destroy humanity? It's a great question. What I love about it, though, is that ultimately it's in the hands of humanity to decide. We make those decisions um, and it forces us to come around the table. And so I believe that actually I think it's pre prevented a lot of wars. Yes, it presents this sort of doomsday scenario of a war to end all wars, but it also gives us the, the tools and the opportunity to maintain a peaceful planet. But we have to take that opportunity. Um, we have to elect the right people. Mm. Um, we have to make decisions as, as a public to hold our leaders to account. So there's a little bit of social and public policy in this as well as innovation. Um, it, it's one thing to build something and innovate, but then when you place it in people's hands, what do they do with it? And for me, it's what do they do with it that really counts. Right, right. And I like that, you know, the points that you made just now actually ties well to that sense of self that you're talking about mm -hmm. a while ago, where you yeah. stress the importance of having that agency. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I want to probe a little bit further. Mm. How do you think strengthening this sense of self actually makes you more relatable or the products that you come up with more impactful in the long term? Because it can sound counterintuitive, right? If you focus on yourself, then you can actually come up with better products and services. So maybe can you articulate a little bit more on that aspect? Yeah, I mean, for me, it comes down to lived experience and personality. I mentioned a little bit about lived experience. I think your lived experience will shape the decisions that you take, and you're far more likely to come with an innovation if you have genuine lived experience and proximity to the, the social problem or any problem than if you don't. Um, and if you you know take the example of the Oppenheimer film, I mean, uh, there's a reason why the Manhattan Project took place in uh, Los Alamos, because Oppenheimer had a specific uh, biographical experience of the place. Mm. And he combined his love of physics with his knowledge of um, a whole range of subject matters, both language and astronomy and, um, uh, and, and the physical place. So, it, you know, your biographical story and the way in which you answer questions is, is not limited to your subject-based knowledge. Um, clearly, uh, Oppenheimer had this um, world-leading understanding of quantum physics, but that wasn't the the main reason um, that he arrived at the atomic bomb or indeed the solutions around that that he, he arrived at it was the sum of the lived experience so the personality of the individual and the strength of that personality and the will um, or the collection of individuals the Manhattan Project was no one not just simply one person um, will shape it so mm. yeah you, you can't simply draw lines around a person's intellect um, or their wisdom potentially or the team or, or the practical experience, you kind of want to draw dotted lines between all of those things. I think right. that really matters. And often, often forget that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, a healthy medium, but um, you've got to take the, the whole... The balance of sorts. Yeah, yeah. You, you can't 
pick out any one element. And it's very right. easy when you look back to do that. I, I think that's a mistake. Yeah, I think ultimately why I name like the Manhattan Project as a social innovation is because it wasn't just um, Oppenheimer's work. Yeah, he didn't win a Nobel Prize because there wasn't like a patent he created for it. But ultimately, bringing together all of the, the, bri- brightest, the brightest minds, minds in physics yeah. and then sort of creating this project, it is a, a great example of a social innovation. Mm. Uh, and then with disruptive fact, effects. With disruptive effects. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. of course. I mean, look, there are two sides to that. And, and I don't want this to feel as if it's a sort of long plug for the, the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, so what I would say to add a bit of counterbalance is that. Um, of course, the other major film uh, released at the same time was uh, Greta Gerwig's Barbie, yes. which um, in many ways is perhaps seen as an antithetical opposite. Um, mm, mm, but in mm. fact, actually, there's some really interesting similarities there if you've right. watched it, as yes. I have, yeah. also twice, um, because I'm <laughs> equally assassinated in it in a very different way. Mm-hmm. That, Spoiler alert. <laughs> Spoiler alert here, maybe, as well. But the, the, the underlying issues there around gender and how, how men and women work together in society, that, what I like about it is that it's rightly um, talks about the role of women in society and, and what Barbie has or hasn't done in a sort of quite slightly satirical way. Mm-hmm. But it also talks about the fact that the only way we're going to move forward is together. Yeah. Um, yes. And and responding to you know, male insecurity, but also the role of women and men in a modern society is the challenge for all of us tomorrow. So I, I quite like that as a takeaway. And, and that is an answer to the modern world's take on, I, I think, quite often polarised opposites, where we, we see innovation through... Um, the lens of either something really powerful and really positive or something really negative whereas in fact a lot of truth is somewhere in the middle Mm -hmm. we're losing the ability to really be able to understand that university is one of the few places still where you can really unpick grey areas in the wider world it's all about polarised opposites I think that's a real shame and a real mistake yeah and on that note perhaps we can take a quick (laughs) break before we continue this interesting conversation yeah sorry about guys sorry perhaps we can discuss the significance of a bottom-up approach. In an interview, you are quoted to say, you don't get change from the top, it comes from the bottom. If you wait for governments and politicians to change, you're going to wait a long time. So, do you still believe in this statement? And why do you think top-bottom change doesn't work, even if that's the prevailing system that we have right now? And how can we innovate this? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I, I spend a lot of time in my day job um, in enterprise innovation change, but I also do a bit of work in and around politics as well. And the politics of social change, some of the biggest changes in society have come through um, a desire for change from the population as a whole, not just you know politicians or, or leaders of, of different varieties. We just look back to the foundation of the NHS, the National Health Service in the UK. That came from a desire to have free at the point of access healthcare which was a really revolutionary concept. It's, it's pretty revolutionary today. There aren't many systems that would, would, would copy that. Um, you know, so 60 years later or so, that's still, or more, it's still going strong. Um, so I, I think innovations like that do come from a groundswell of public opinion and a desire for change that politicians often then follow through with. Um, so a bottom approach really matters. And I think entrepreneurs are well-placed to deliver that. Innovators are well-placed to deliver that simply because... Um, you know, they work with raw materials, they have the proximity we talked about, lived experience, um, and they, uh, they're resilient, they fight for resource. 
Mm. Uh, and they're able to demonstrate impact and, and, and then potentially even scale that. But you can, at that point, often get politicians or leaders coming in and saying, well, actually, you know, I've, I've seen that innovation. We want to help. We want to help scale that. We want to provide a policy perspective. We want to give that um, regional uh, reach um, or investment. So, you know, I mean, there is a value in politicians. I don't want to be uh, <laughs> sort of pigeonholed there. Um, mm. uh, but I, I do think a lot of the legwork and the hard work goes before that, and it's powered by entrepreneurs and innovators first and foremost. Right. You mentioned something about the availability of resources, mm. and I just want to pick your brain a little. If you think that um, availability or scarcity for that reason actually affects an innovator's propensity to be more creative. So in your experience, if this person comes from a very, let's say, not so privileged background, is that person a little bit more creative than somebody who has all of the resources available to him or her? Yeah, I I do think there's a role for scarcity to play in terms of resource, in terms of um, access to ideas. Uh, And quite often in the research and in the sort of people that I work with, we see individuals that have had uh, you know, disadvantage in growing up and, and realizing potential um, and haven't had access to the resource, but have some inherent talent and, uh, again, proximity to the problem that enables them in combination to come up with really interesting, innovative solutions. And it just seems to happen time and again. So right. um, in the research, sometimes they're referred to as sort of talented disadvantage, perhaps slightly unkindly, but the idea is, you know, you've got a passion to make some change there might be a scarcity of resource, but you know, you're driven on and mm, that mm. seems to work more effectively and more efficiently than somebody that has, you know, potentially all the resources in front of you, but isn't driven by passion and motivation. There's a kind of link here with um, some of Simon Sinek's work around purpose and, um, you know, mm-hmm. starting with why this idea of, you know, he often uses the example of the Wright brothers and, um, you know, how is it possible that these individuals could um, figure out um, man-powered flight Mm. Uh, when they had no access to college education or resource but they had the passion and the will and they, and they drew connections between um, the, the sort of organic ecological um, world and machinery and the it was the the individuals in society who were given all the money and the um, uh, the kudos and, and were followed by media companies that ultimately weren't able to follow through and didn't get there first because they weren't really driven by that desire, that passion, the purpose to make a change. And I think that applies, of course, in social change. I think it also applies in innovation that is perhaps more typically for profit. I I don't, uh, what I would say is I I don't lump um, people into either the social change category or the for-profit category. Mm. Reasons for innovation go beyond money uh, and purpose. And and, and, But I I do think you need to have purpose and be driven by something that's more than just yourself, I think, to make a real change. It has to be more than just you in there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we can channel through like social entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. and then with social innovation, the Institute for Global Prosperity creates cohorts to champion prosperity in different parts of the globe. As someone who has experience in advocating for social entrepreneurship, given your experience uh, of work at Global Send, what were some of the challenges to social innovation you observe across the world? Yeah, I was lucky enough to be the executive director of the Global Social Entrepreneurship Network for a couple of years, and that was pre-pandemic, really, um, mm. you know, when traveling around the world and holding mm. events in big centers and conferences was, was something we could do, and for a right. while, and we couldn't. Um, one of the challenges is that challenge of bringing people together mm. um, under one roof, 
uh, or, or with the technology to enable real integration and, and, and conversation. Um, and that is a physical challenge, but it's also a getting people on the same page challenge in terms of creating a conversation that's rich enough with the right people in the room to make change. Um, that's increasingly difficult to do, especially within this sort of polarized world that we've talked about already. It's harder and harder to bring people together that maybe think differently. Yeah. Um, they don't want to be in the same room together, and they have a. Uh, we go from sometimes an intellectual disagreement to a one that can become quite personal quite quickly now. I find, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's a real shame. Um, that clash of ideas and, and, and difference of background and, and um, lived experience is really critical to creating solutions. So one of my challenges is always how can I create platforms for others to come together and have a conversation you know I host events panel conversations travel from country to country with the express purpose of, of learning but also sharing learning and bringing uh, partners and players together that, that needed to be in the same room um, what I'd find is investors entrepreneurs policymakers the media were often hanging out in, in different locations without the strong enough connection between them. There weren't enough opportunities for them to engage with each other and that's where the magic happened. So number one for me was about how do you draw those connections together. Um, but I think number two is, you know, there, there is a large amount of resource out there. Um, there's a lot of money um, for social change, um, but it is in the hands of a relatively small number of individuals, um, pension funds, investment, uh, impact investment funds, so it's about actually showcasing demonstrable um, innovations and individuals that can scale those approaches. Um, it's this idea of a missing middle. Uh, right. I spent a lot of my time talking about this idea of where are those scalable solutions that we can feed through a pipeline to access this resource. The money is there, mm. but you have to be able to demonstrate the impact and scale it. So we're still trying to find those scalable solutions and innovations, but they are out there. And a big part of my work is, is trying to find them and make some of those connections then and now. Do you find that these problems are parallel across these countries or are you, are you citing specific instances? I think there are global problems which have particular ways of um, formulating themselves in a, in a, in a geography. So I, I see the same challenges over and over again in a slightly different geography presented in a slightly different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the, the, the local solutions are the solutions we should be looking to but sometimes there is obviously a resource and, and then lessons learned in other places that can be applied. And that's when the magic happens, when you apply the proximity and the lived experience to um, the expertise and the, the sort of um, been there and bought the t-shirt approach that others will have. If you bring that all together in one place, that's when you create the really powerful innovation in, in my view. But quite often those two things are separate. So you've got the entrepreneur, the innovator, that have got the local experience that kind of know the answer, but they just don't have the resource or the playbook. So how do we unite those things? Yeah, I mean, we've discussed a lot of points mm. already and we've covered a lot of topics and you sort of like hinted about the scalability of social innovations. Mm-hmm. And of course, um, I guess in conjunction with that, we have to look at if it will stick, mm. right? Yeah. So in order for it to really stick in a specific context, it needs to be designed with a, um, ecosystem and local circumstances at mind because otherwise yeah. it will just be irrelevant. Mm-hmm. So given this, were there any similarities or differences that you notice when you work with different contexts as well as when you engage with these diverse range of clients across countries? And if you did notice 
these patterns, what do you think this reflects for the future of social innovation? Mm, yeah, great question. So ecosystem management and kind of building platforms is kind of what I do. I've done it for other people and in the previous employed roles I've taken. And then in my own consultancy practice, all my work is really about building platforms, partnering to amplify impact. I'm, I'm one person um, with a small team, you know, partners, freelancers, but ultimately the way we're going to scale these solutions is not by having big organisations with lots of people working for them. It's actually about building bridges between walks of life, countries, places. Um, I mean, the commonality here is that we're all people. And people, when they speak different languages and have different lived experiences, will have humanity in common. So that, that core humanity, and that's why conversations, bringing people together in a physical place, is just as important as it always was. You know, the, this concept, this idea that you can run a brilliant international conference, and I've, uh, you know, I've been involved in a few of those whether due to my own work or others. But the reality is it's the networking and the conversation that takes place around those topics and, and, and conversations that, that really matter. Right. Um, the expertise is important, but you bring that in the room and panels and um, keynote addresses are just the first starting point. Then they're, they're not the end or the be all and end all, if you like, of, of the purpose of these events. It's what happens when you bring people together over a, a glass of something, alcoholic or otherwise, that's, I think, where um, we see potential solutions and partnerships or the nascency of them evolve and emerge. So I think that is key. I think fundamentally, people have passions and things they care about and, you know, very often people-focused. Can we harness those passions? Can we keep those passions going and moving over time? Because it's very easy for those two, um, for cynicism to come in, especially in the modern world where we, we know there are so many challenges. Um, it's easy to become... You know, while we fall in love with the problem, it's easy to become cynical of it as well. And, and, mm -hmm. and is it possible to solve climate right. change being the prime example of that, I guess. But you've got to remain passionate and engaged and, and driven to solution. Um, I have no problem with cynicism if it can be fueled into resiliency and, and actually creating solutions. Um, it's where it's cynicism for the sake of it and where it creates... Um, a lack of progress mm. uh, it, it, can we create that sort of passion and resiliency to make change and I think that's something we all have in common we may care about different people in different communities um, and there'll be some division there but ultimately there's a lot of people and humanity focused issues we really care about that we could bring together and could do more to do that I think finding this, the commonality and focusing a bit less on the division well, there's so many things to ask for for future social innovation and for future innovators. But honestly, I think it's really relevant to, like, even in the journey, even our personal journey, to find something that you can be um, attached to or passionate in something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, not to sort of grandstand thing, but it's sort of like the meaning of life, mm -hmm. where, like, you find something that you're in love with or either doing or solving yeah. that you push it forward and you bring in more people more resources into sort of this trajectory so in closing mm. as we draw close to this lovely podcast thank you for again thank you for participating we'd like to ask we are not the first nor are we the last innovators in this world and with today's ever-changing landscape What's a timeless piece of advice you want aspiring innovators to know? Hmm. 
Timeless piece of advice. Uh, always be a bit careful when you give out these sort of <laughs> one-liner pieces yeah. of advice. They come back to me. Right, right. right. Where it can haunt you in the future. Like, why did you see this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is gonna yeah hopefully not where, like, build your roads narrower. <laughs> <laughs> build your roads. Or build the like... wall. <laughs> yeah. Um, gosh, what one piece of advice um, would I give to aspiring or future social innovators? Um... You know, again, I think it's safe as territory to speak from my own lived experience here. I, I talk a lot about lived experience, as you know, a uh, big believer in that. Um, it's to say, actually, build the partnerships and the platforms that you would be proud of that create the solutions that you can stand behind. I, I spend a lot of my time in my own work building platforms for other people. I don't have a specific sector or a specific issue that I am most passionate about. I'm passionate about a lot of issues, but what I try and do is create platforms and partnerships um, for others to champion those issues. And through their impact, I create impact. The more impact the people and the organizations I work with have, the more impact I have. So their success is my success. I think that kind of partnership approach is key. So build platforms and partnerships that you can be proud of. I think if you can do that, you can scale that and your lived experience should really matter. Remember, nobody is you. So if you can be the best you you can be, that's pretty unique and should be pretty special. That's what the most successful people do. They build their own brand and they build success by being the best that they can be. Yeah, of course, a bit of luck, a bit of skill on the way does help, but that that unique lived experience is absolutely critical. Right, yeah. Right. I couldn't think of a better ending. Yeah. No, it's my real pleasure to be with you and I wish you and your listeners all the best. Um, I hope this has been interesting for you and something you'll take away whether you're exercising eating dinner right now or, or doing something completely different it <laughs> might give a different spin to your building head. the sure. next nuclear bomb <laughs> <Absolutely. laughs> no <laughs> that's not the key takeaway that you want <laughs> let's stop with the Barbenheimer references Absolutely. it has to end <laughs> thank you so much again Peter for having us thank and we you. hope that you had a lovely time as well I did thank you thank you